Hi, I'm Laura Cox Kaplan. Welcome to She Said, She Said. I created this platform a couple of years ago with the specific intent to showcase a broader range of women's voices, how we lead and how we have a positive impact. I'd been frustrated for a long time that there was a very narrow view of what women's leadership really looked like. Since that time, uh, after more than 100 episodes, I think I've stayed true to that mission of presenting you with interesting voices of insightful perspective that is oftentimes very unique to women. We're in incredibly challenging times to be sure. And I aim to be very sensitive with the topics that we cover, but also to stay true to that goal of giving you that insight, that food for thought, a positive uplift to your day. My guest today is no exception. In fact, I think she's the perfect complement to many of the topics that we oftentimes talk about. Emily Ramshaw is one of the most innovative female voices in media. She is the co-founder and CEO of The 19th. It is the nation's first nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom that is situated squarely at the intersection of gender, politics, and policy. She and her team are working to create more inclusive coverage of issues as they pertain to women, women of all colors, all faiths, all political persuasions. It's a huge, huge challenge um, and very difficult to achieve and do it well. So I'm excited to have Emily here to talk about that. Beyond that, the 19th is also embracing a cutting-edge nonprofit journalism business model that is similar to one created at the Texas Tribune. Emily has spent the past decade at the Tribune as the editor-in-chief since 2016. When Texas Tribune co-editors Evan Smith and Ross Ramsey were asked how they selected Emily to join their team when they were just getting the Texas Tribune started, Ramsey is quoted as saying, you ought to hire the reporters who you are afraid to compete with. And he, of course, was referring to Emily. She is a real journalist who understands how to dig into a story. She's gone undercover in a polygamous West Texas cult, exposed sexual abuse in juvenile detention centers, and her work as both a journalist and a leader in media earned her a seat on the Pulitzer board. We have so much to discuss in this conversation. Emily, welcome to She Said, She Said. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here with you. I am delighted to have you. Um, you're all the way from Austin, Texas, my old stomping ground. So it's great to, <laughs> to be connected to you and back to my Texas roots. Indeed. Well, we wish you were here with us. We wish, we wish we were anywhere with anybody else right now. So. I know. I hear that. I hear that. So let's start by talking about the 19th. This is a very exciting venture. And I want you to, to tell our viewers and our listeners what the 19th is, but I also want you to talk about why you felt the need to start something new. You are already at the Texas Tribune. You're in an editorial position. Why not double down on gender coverage at an existing publication as opposed to starting something new? The long and short is, um, let me tell you a little bit about the 19th. So the 19th, which launches in August, is the country's first nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom at the intersection of women, politics, and policy. And what that means for us really is storytelling that 
elevates the voices of women of color and women off of the coasts in American media um, that really seeks both a, a demographically and ideologically diverse audience and it is powered by storytelling that is not sort of the day's news but pink. It is a journalism that exposes disparities, uh, gaps, opportunities for women across virtually every arena, whether it's our healthcare system, uh, you know, our economy, our workforce, maybe most important, the role of women in representative government in the United States. Um, and so the, the, the goal for me was um, to build this new platform. Um, you know, I'll take you back about four years ago. I had just had a baby girl. I was in a, an extraordinary job at the Texas Tribune. You know, it really serves a sustainable gold standard for nonprofit local news. Um, Trump had just been inaugurated. We were seeing all these women's marches. The Me Too movement was really underway. And I just sort of stopped and thought, I feel like women don't have a home. They don't have a safe sort of journalistic space, a media platform where we can exchange ideas, where we can have civil discourse, where we can teach women, give them the tools and information they need to make the best decisions for them uh, politically from a policy standpoint. I thought, why don't we take this really sustainable business model for local news at the Texas Tribune and try to extrapolate it onto a national stage for women, politics and policy. And so, you know, it, it took me a few years to get beyond having a small infant spitting up on me to actually being able to see the light and consider building this new venture. But honestly, the lead up to 2020 felt like the absolute right time. So here we are. Yeah. So give me an example of kind of how what the 19th will do will differ from what we might see at another publication. Sure. I mean, I think the biggest difference is at many other publications, you know, there's a particular vertical devoted to gender or to women. It's buried inside the broader publication. It's a side dish and not the main course. Uh, for us, that journalism is the main course. It's front and center. Um, and, and I think another big difference is that a lot of news organizations talk at their audience. They tell the stories. They expect their audience to consume them. Our goal is to have a really robust conversation, a dialogue with our readership to provide um, news and information, but also an exchange of ideas. We'll do a lot of asking. We're going to do a lot of listening. And I think the primary other sort of big difference is for us, um, women of color and women off of the coast, women who find themselves historically underrepresented in American media are front and center. They are the story for us. Uh, so I think that's an area where we will differentiate ourselves. It's such an interesting approach. So how about, as you think about your audience, you've just outlined your audience from the standpoint of how you think about it related to the different sort of segments and interests of women. But what about men who really benefit from these conversations? How do, how do you think about men as part of your audience? Or, or is it really just, is your audience focused on women? No, we got to feed men their vegetables too. Absolutely. Uh, so <laughs> we think about the distribution of our journalism in two primary ways. So yes, we are absolutely building our own digital platform, 19thnews.org, where we imagine we'll have a really robust community of primarily women who sort of identify as frontliners. They maybe care about one or more issues. They maybe already are either a little bit civically engaged or want to be more deeply civically engaged. And that's great. Uh, but we also are giving all of our journalism away for free to every other news organization in America. There will be an easy republish button on our website. We're brokering really incredible 
incredible arrangements right now with major uh, news gathering, news distribution companies around the country where they can automatically push our work out to their audiences. So our goal is to be in hundreds of daily newspapers around the country every day, to be you know, distributed and, and republished in Spanish and pushed out across those platforms to have relationships with ethnic media where our work is also powering and appearing in their platforms. Um, the goal is that, you know, the woman or man on the bus in El Paso between job one and job two picks up a discarded copy of the El Paso Times and sees our reporting. Uh, that's where I think the majority of men will find access to our work. You know, yes, we want to build a robust online audience, um, but our, our vision and our public service mission also is to get in front of as many eyeballs as possible, whether or not those folks come to our platforms. And yeah. so that's where men fit into this equation. We need yeah. them. No, that's, that's really, really helpful. You have touched on a couple of times the business model and the uniqueness of this. And I think this is such an interesting time for journalism where traditional publications are really feeling the squeeze for a host of reasons. And that's part of what makes what was created at the Tribune that you have been a part of for the last decade so unique. And you've sort of taken, it sounds like a version of that to create the 19th. Talk a little bit more in depth about the nuts and bolts of the business model itself, which I find fascinating. Sure. So, I mean, I think what we championed at the Texas Tribune and what was so innovative there was a really entrepreneurial nonprofit. So it's a 501c3, but it has a super diversified set of revenue streams. And that's what we're trying to extrapolate to the 19th. And so those revenue streams are philanthropy, which is always a piece of the equation for a nonprofit like the 19th. Foundation support. You know, we want those supporters, those big foundations at the table. But there's also corporate revenue, corporate underwriting, which tends to be sort of the corporate social responsibility budgets of companies. It's, you know, Anheuser-Busch talking about the water they, you know, gave away during Hurricane Harvey versus selling beer. Um, so, so corporate underwriting is certainly a piece of this pie. Membership is an important piece. Membership is not sort of the, the um, pay to play, you know, it's not subscription based, but it is the public radio viewers like you model, you know, in the first 24 hours after we announced that we were launching the 19th in January, uh, we raised $100,000, most of it in individual $19 gifts from women around the country. Wow. So we sort of the, the sky could be the limit there from that standpoint. And then finally, and this is the biggest question mark in this moment, is live events. The Tribune, the Texas Tribune, really championed um, live events where you brought Texans into direct conversation with their elected officials around the state. We are hoping to do that with the 19th with elected officials around the country. Uh, so far, we have pivoted from those you know, in-person events to virtual. Uh, the corporate underwriting for those uh, virtual events has conveyed, which we think is really promising. But I do think sort of long-term, that's the big question mark as we wait and see when folks are comfortable being together in the flesh, which I think is an incredibly important way for women in particular to dialogue and to exchange ideas. So it sounds like there's a real doubling down to as part of this as it relates to kind of what we would refer to in, other, in, a, in another context as a direct-to-consumer model, where whether you're selling widgets or shoes or whatever, that especially in this environment, 
there is a real need to connect more closely with your consumer and to get that feedback, right? Talk about how that piece of the puzzle, maybe dig a little bit deeper into how you maintain that connection. You talked about live events, which is an interesting piece of that, but I know there's more. Talk a little bit more about how that works. Yeah, community is so important to journalism. And I think in many ways, it's what we lost in this business over the last couple of decades, these relationships with your audience, uh, where they're, you know, consumer, it has become sort of a dirty word, but the reality is we need them and they need us. And it should be a sort of, sometimes it's going to be a rocky relationship, but it should be a trusting relationship. And I think building trust in media, we found at the Texas Tribune that even if folks disagreed with your coverage, they trusted you more if they met you in the flesh and they knew who the reporter was who was telling those stories. And they, you know, came to your events and saw you in the room. It wasn't just sort of, you know, the echo chamber of people shouting each other down on Twitter. And, and one interesting way we're already seeing this at play at the 19th is we started pushing out a newsletter. We weren't intending to have a newsletter really until our launch in August, but around the time that COVID set in, we felt like we had an obligation to start telling stories even by a newsletter about the ways that women were being disproportionately affected, whether it was the way they were losing jobs at a faster rate or the fact that they were three quarters of frontline healthcare workers who were being sickened by COVID. And so we started this sort of organic newsletter that now has about 10,000 people reading it several times a week with a ridiculously high open rate of like 45%, which is crazy for a newsletter, it's great. And what's happening over and over again that still stuns me as an, an editor and a journalist is the number of people who literally just hit reply to those emails, those newsletters, and write us their personal stories and talk to us about what they're grappling with, trying to homeschool three kids while hanging onto a job while their husband has headphones on in the office, focusing on you know his place of employment. It's been a fascinating, uh, women are hungry for this dialogue and communication and the fact that they'll respond to, you know, an, a, an email newsletter with a personal story, seeking out that, you know, firsthand connection to me is really reassuring that we're onto something here. I'm curious about your analytics as you dig into them and look at them. Are you finding that you're getting the same level of response across the spectrum of the women that you're trying to serve from women of color to more conservative women than you typically hear from um, to, to other women that might be you know, more inclined to write to you or to speak up or things like that? Talk about what you're seeing in terms of the range of input that you're getting. And, it, and is it truly diverse? Is your audience, the audience response as diverse as what you're hoping? Sure. It's sort of hard to know right now because we don't have analytics per se on uh, the racial or, uh, you know, political ideological backgrounds of the folks. You know, you tend to hear from people, I think in the early days, we're seeing, hearing from women who are hyper engaged on either sides of the aisle. I think the, the, the trickier piece for us right now is trying to determine, I think the two hardest groups to reach, and these are, you know, I use the term groups lightly because yeah. these are holy groups. These are enormous subsets of our population. Of course. But, but we are really aggressively seeking women of color who we think are underserved and upper, underrepresented by legacy media. We're also really trying to reach conservative women who I think many of whom see themselves 
as a caricature of themselves in a lot of legacy media and are um, are looking for a place where they feel accurately reflected. I think you know what we're trying to go for is is nuance and storytelling that is empathetic and that reaches women where they are, where they see themselves reflected and. You know, I, I find that even the language that we use is really interesting. Like when I, I don't believe that equity is a partisan issue. I don't, I don't believe that equity is a dirty word, but I find that, you know, when you talk to women um, who identify as progressive, equity is a word that they really rally around. When you talk to women who are conservative, um, opportunity is a word that, that really resonates with them. And I think we're talking about the same things here, but that we're often talking past each other. And so we're trying to find a safe space where we can exchange these ideas and, and sort of get out of our own echo chambers uh, and really talk to each other, with each other, instead of talking at each other or through each other. But yeah. but it's like this is an experiment, right? I mean, I think the reason that a lot of media has struggled uh, to sort of scratch this itch is that it's really complicated. I just really believe we don't move the needle um, for true equality for women if the same groups of women are talking to the same groups of women all the time. So that's what we're trying to combat. It is such a laudable goal, and what you said is so incredibly important as it relates to representation. There's, you know, you, you see oftentimes people throw this terminology around, and it's about all women, but it's not about all women. It's about certain segments of women. And so it's very refreshing to hear you talk about this. And while I recognize that you haven't officially launched, you said you'll be launching in August of this year. So we are, it is a bit of a precursor, but you are beginning to cover issues. You have the newsletter out. And I know you've put a particular focus on coverage of women of color as you know, really trying to be on the leading edge of that. And, and I think it's important, especially in the current environment, because we are having this very challenging conversation. Um, everyone's grappling with what what does this mean and how do we how do we respond and how do we deal with this talk to me a little bit about uh, maybe differences in the way that you're approaching this topic of women of color right now sure I, I mean I'll start by saying uh, I know what I don't know in this circumstance which is like I'm I'm a white woman of privilege um, uh, the people whose voices we are seeking to elevate um, have life ex lived experiences life experiences that bear next to no resemblance to mine and I am super cognizant of that fact I am devoted to building a sustainable platform where we can hire extraordinary women uh, particularly women of color and elevate their voices and their storytelling and their communities so that our journalism, our media is more reflective of women than it has ever been. I mean, I think it's really important to, to note that women are not monolithic, that our lived experiences differ dramatically, and, and also that there has been unequal representation or reflection of the experiences of women of color in American media effectively since the founding of this nation. Um, so we're feeling really, really um, cognizant of that. We're trying to keep our eyes really open. Our journalism is rooted in fact and evidence, and I think that's critically important. 
but we also have women on our team. Um, you know, Erin Haynes on our team uh, came to us from the Associated Press, a black woman who was covering uh, race in the United States for the AP before she came over to cover sort of intersection of gender and race um, for the 19th. And, you know, we're being cognizant of the fact that our reporters are uh, experiencing really uh, difficult things in this moment, feeling um, the sort of realities of their lives and the, the trauma and the legacies of, of their experience as they try to tell these stories. Um, so for us, an example of a way that we might have approached this that's different than another news organization the the incident in Central Park um, a couple of weeks ago that was sort of now in many ways feels lost in the George Floyd um, uh, you know murder and the conversations we're having around that um, you know a, a version of the 19th story was just, a just, just, just to bring our viewers up to yes. speed, you're referring to the woman walking her dog in Central Park who called the police uh, she was approached by an African American man and she called the police correct Is right. Exactly. Yes. The, they're both had the last name Cooper. So it's confusing. But the Central Park case, you know, the, what we wrote about, what Aaron wrote about was um, the power that white women still hold over black men that is really a legacy of, you know, uh, that dates back to slavery and the accusations that white women uh, could make against black men um, and, you know, how their word was always taken at face value. I mean, I think these are important stories to tell about, about white women's privilege um, in this moment. And also there's a story to tell about the reckoning that I think a lot of women in this country on both sides of the aisle are, are going through right now and thinking about what our responsibility or our obligation is. Um, you know, my, my white mom who's in her 70s in Florida sent me a text message last night asking if I could put aside, you know, the Ta-Nehisi Coates books that I have for her when she gets back to Austin. And to me, like, that's a sign, I hope, that we're in the midst of a true sea change here instead of yet another, um, yet another unnecessary death um, that doesn't result in sort of true societal change. So yeah. tough stuff, obviously, but I think important for us to be talking about. Um, you're also, as we talked about just a couple of minutes ago, um, also trying to be very inclusive of different ideologies and political views and really trying to embrace women on the right who oftentimes feel very left out of mainstream coverage and or either consciously or unconsciously ignored. Um, talk about how you will try to include them and what your newsroom will look like to be you know, perhaps a bit more mindful. You, you talked about language differences and how people hear things differently. You may mean the same thing with the word, but you're going to hear it differently if you're coming from the left or coming from the right. So talk a little bit about how you're going to approach conservative women and try to, to, to engage and embrace them as well. So for us, we're thinking a lot about regional diversity in addition to, uh, you know, racial diversity. Um, when you see us building our newsroom over the next two months, you're going to see hires that are in a lot of unexpected places. Uh, we hired a, an economics reporter who was not based on Wall Street. She's based in Orlando, Florida. Um, you know, Cuban-American woman um, who we're super excited to bring into the fold has been covering labor in Florida. Um, you'll see us hiring uh, reporters in uh, Iowa City. You'll see us hiring, obviously, the, our, the base of our team is in Texas, you know, in, in the heart of Texas. We're having conversations with extraordinary candidates who are everywhere from Atlanta to Sacramento to, um, you know, Reno to Pittsburgh. 
Um, I think that regional diversity sort of the getting what the what <laughs> what you know folks in so legacy media have sort of disparagingly called a flyover country. Um, we think flyover country should be the heart of the story, and so uh, I think that's where you're going to see a lot of our hiring and where we hope that outreach begins. Um, Empathy is really important to me. Understanding, really trying to make an effort to understand, um, you know, why women believe what they believe, what their upbringings look like, you know, what guides their decision making. It's not enough to stop into a diner in Iowa in your political coverage and think that you really understand the way that conservative women think. Um, so, so I, I think that you know, empathy. I think um, a representative, reflective newsroom. Uh, making sure that we have leadership with a wide range of backgrounds. Um, and then finally, the events piece of this is, is critically important. And we found this at the Texas Tribune as well. Whether it's virtual or in person, I think having conversations with, um, you know, key conservative newsmakers, um, you know, we're having a, a virtual launch event in August. And one of those key conversations is about the next generation of the GOP for women, the women who are trying to sort of change the face of the party for future generations. I think being inclusive in our dialogue, in our conversations, um, and in our storytelling is the way to start. Yeah, yeah. So you talk about the fact that in some respects, this will be a virtual newsroom out of necessity. And one of the big challenges with this whole virtual environment, even though everyone's had to embrace this in a way that maybe they never thought that they could or would, given the experience with COVID over the last four months, how do you think about both creating, because this is a new organization, and managing that culture, creating the culture that you want, and then managing to that when, in effect, you are going to be operating virtually with or without COVID. Yes. So consider this. When we launch in August, 80% of our staff I will have never met in the flesh. No way. Which is just like nuts. You know, we're doing everything like this right now, including making, you know, really critical decisions uh, about the journalists in our operation. So I would say for starters, that's just a totally new world order here. Um, from the standpoint of managing teams, we are doing our absolute best to just make sure we're taking care of each other as best we can in this moment. You know, this is different than being able to, you, you know, you see someone kind of looking down uh, in your office and you ask them how they're feeling and you, that was a conversation about what's going on at home. That's a lot harder to do in this setting. Um, we are insisting on a lot of FaceTime, um, whether you're in your pajamas or your yoga pants or your cat is on your lap, you know, or your kid is smearing something on you behind you, because we think it's really important to be able to, you know, uh, sort of take care of each other virtually. We're having a lot of Zoom happy hours where the only thing you can't talk about is work, where we're trying to sort of acquire the sort of life experiences or inside jokes or the kind of things that you acquire in a, in a you know, office setting that we just can't do right now. Um, you know, one thing that's been fascinating about this moment is that the other big reason we launched the 19th was to prove the case that you could provide greater flexibility for women in newsrooms and help them to advance in their careers. Um, so that meant for us things like, you know, six months of fully paid family leave, four months of fully paid caregiver leave. So you could spend the last few months of your mom or dad's life with them without worrying that you had to be back at work you know, something that was novel until a couple of months ago, like fully remote workspaces, you know, where you could work wherever you have the best caregiver or childcare situation. We, that was an experiment. 
And we never once imagined or budgeted for the concept that everybody on our team would effectively need that flexibility at the same time, right? Like <laughs> in a normal newsroom, uh, you know, one woman might be pregnant one year, a guy might be, you know, adopting a child another year. Uh, it never all happens at once. Right. Um, and we are now suddenly living out this reality where everyone needs that flexibility at the same time. And magically, it all still works. We're still launching on schedule a brand new startup with a whole bunch of women moms who are navigating homeschooling their kids and launching a startup, um, trying to keep their elderly parents from going to the grocery store without a mask on and launching a startup. Um, and I just think this is the, this is the honest to, to God uh, hardest time to possibly imagine putting those kinds of opportunities in place for women and we're proving the case that it still works, which should be a great signal to anybody else considering that kind of flexibility for their workforce. I mean, it's, it's actually a fabulous story. And I think if there is a silver lining to all of this COVID, it is the fact that so many, not all organizations for sure, there are, there are plenty of people that are, that are horribly affected and the economy's taken a terrible hit and there's awful stuff that has happened as a result. But there's also a lot of positive from the standpoint that people have figured out creative ways to do things in many respects, which is a really positive thing and a silver, silver lining. Your career has taken a, several interesting turns. And so I'd love to dig into that a little bit. You started out as a journalist, you became an editor and made that shift. Um, now you are the CEO and, a, and the co-founder of an organization. Talk to me about First of all, the shift, making the, the, the shift from, from journalist to editor, and what skills you needed um, that maybe you didn't have, how did you sort of close the learning curve gap? It's not that unusual for a journalist to become an editor, obviously, but what did you find you needed to do maybe more of that you hadn't realized before when you were a journalist? Sure. I mean, I think so for anybody who makes the, the pivot from working journalist, uh, working reporter to editor, I think the first thing you have to come to terms with is the loss of your own byline and sort of the, the ego boost and confidence that is associated with seeing your name in print or on the website or on the air, um, you know, routinely. And I think there is sort of a little bit, you feel like maybe you're losing your journalistic soul for a hot second as you make that pivot. Um, but what generally happens really quickly and happened for me for sure uh, was this sort of, um, I was ignited by the joy I got seeing the reporters who I edited succeed and helping guide their coverage and helping them figure out what records to ask for and how to frame that story in the way that got, you know, uh, the biggest bang. And so I think that's, that's an evolution. Um, the other big evolution for me, obviously, was going from being the editor and leading a news uh, operation, a daily news operation, to being a CEO, which suddenly you are literally responsible for the financial sustainability of, uh, of yourself and of the people who you uh, have sort of begged and pleaded to come with you on this mission. And it's an enormous responsibility. Um, I'm a first-time CEO. I'm a first-time fundraiser. Uh, I thought I knew what I was doing and then COVID struck. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'm relatively risk averse for a startup um, person. You know, I'd like to have a couple of years of runway in the bank, uh, no matter what. Right. I think this is putting uh, all of the skills that I hoped I had to the test. So from that standpoint, it's an enormous career pivot. Um, 
but I also feel like there aren't enough women who see themselves as news entrepreneurs or who have the gumption and guts to take that leap and see if they rise or fall. Uh, and I think in this moment where uh, news organizations are struggling mightily to stay afloat and to keep their teams employed, we need more creativity, more flexibility, and more people willing to jump into that fray and try something new. Uh, and I'm honored to be one of those people. Yeah. You mentioned the fact that you're risk averse, which I find a bit curious given the particular risks that you've taken in your career, including this most recent one, the risk from going from you were at the Dallas Morning News and you took a position at the Texas Tribune when it was a startup. So that was obviously a risk. And then you went from there to the editorial side, which is, I mean, to some degree, there's risk involved in that. But this, this latest pivot where you're literally starting a startup yourself and you're taking on wearing the hat of founder and CEO is yet another risk. Talk to, our, talk to me and talk to our listeners and viewers about how you think about risks. How do you know when the right time to make that move is? You know, it's interesting because leaving the Dallas Morning News to start the Texas Tribune did not feel like a risk. In fact, it felt riskier to stay in a newsroom where I had survived four rounds of layoffs in my first six years on that job. Uh, to me, at that moment, I didn't have a kid. I wasn't married. It felt like, you know, this was a, a Hail Mary pass, honestly, for the industry, for local news. Um, and it was the gift of a career. It changed, you know, the entire course of my career. It made what I'm doing today possible, feasible. Uh, was also surrounded by extraordinary allies, including our CEO at the Tribune, Evan Smith, who gave me every opportunity and knew that I could do it. Um, so this latest risk is, is definitely a bigger risk. <laughs> I mean, I have a small child. I'm married. Uh, you know, uh, I'm the provider of health insurance and benefits for our family. All of those things make this moment, I think, more pivotal. But for me, at the end of the day, I knew it was time to take the risk when I just could not get the idea out of my head. Um, and, and I knew I would be really disappointed if somebody else did it and I hadn't. So, so yes, it's a risk, but I think for me, the greater risk is always standing still. It's a great response and a great way to think about it. You are the daughter of two uh, DC, who were two DC-based reporters. So you grew up in the Washington metro area and moved to Texas. It's fairly unusual to have somebody who decides to cover politics and pursue journalism coming from DC and going to Texas. Talk a little bit about why you made that particular decision. How did that come about? Sure. So I never thought I would stay in Texas. I am a child of DC. My parents were both political journalists there. Uh, and Texas was the first place I got a journalism job. So I came down to work for the Dallas Morning News. They sent me down to Austin to cover the legislature. And when I got to Austin, um, I realized that I had sort of found my personal mecca. Um, I, you know, it's a, a very progressive city and my job was covering one of the most conservative legislatures in the country. And that, uh, that crux, that intersection, I found fascinating. I felt challenged every day. I felt like my own sort of preconceived notions shifted. I understand uh, and, and I learned very quickly that, you know, there are really extraordinary, great, you know, well-intentioned um, and, and, um, and thoughtful people on both sides of the aisle and that really terrific policy can be made when those challenging conversations occur. 
And so I, I fell in love with Texas in many ways. I fell in love with my husband, who is not a Texan. We're both from the East Coast. Um, I sort of thought and hoped my career pivot early on. I sort of assumed I would start in Texas, and then I'd go to the Washington Post or the New York Times, and that would be my progression. But when I got here, um, and especially when we started the Tribune, I realized that this was where my heart was and that this is where I wanted to stay and raise my family. And so now I'm in this moment of, I want to prove the case that you can build a national media brand from the center of the United States, partially because I don't want to leave Austin <laughs> or Texas, but partially because I think in this moment in history, it's really important to prove the case that so much happens off of the coasts um, and, and that, that we really need a, a, a truly representative, reflective media. And that starts with building brands uh, that aren't in New York or DC or San Francisco or LA. So we talked a minute ago about risk-taking. A somewhat related topic is the topic of self-doubt, which we talk about on this podcast a lot, and imposter syndrome. How do, you, how do you get comfortable when you don't have all the answers, which you never should, right? You should always be learning and growing, but at the same time, it can present that real discomfort for a person. So for you, do you feel that self-doubt? And if you do, what's in your toolkit? What advice do you give for other people for kind of keeping that self-doubt at bay? Yes, it's funny. There's only one person I've ever heard say they have no self-doubt. I was on a panel with Kara Swisher and I, somebody asked that self-doubt question and she was like, yeah, I just don't have self-doubt. And I was so impressed because I am racked with self-doubt. You know, it, it crops up all the time. I have it sitting here having a conversation with you. I have it as, uh, you know, a journalist, as an entrepreneur. I have it as a mother, as a parent. I have it as a wife. I have it as a child. Um, I'm never sure I'm doing the right thing. And I think that, honestly, it's healthy for me, that sort of level of always questioning, because it means I listen a lot. And, right. and I may be the boss, I may be the CEO, but I'm not the expert. And I try to surround myself with people who have the skills that I don't, who have the lived experiences I don't, and who can be a, a check on any of my ideas that are, that are too far afield or that um, aren't appropriately inclusive. Um, so I don't have, I certainly don't have all the answers for this. And I do think as women, um, unfortunately, we are disproportionately plagued by this challenge of self-doubt. I, I know, you know, count thousands of men who appear to have no self-doubt in, in these types of moments. But I think, I think that self-doubt is really important um, because it gives me the opportunity to step back and learn from others. So I think if you are a heavy self-doubter like I am, uh, surround yourself uh, with, with, competent and extraordinary people. Uh -huh. But you know, what you just described, it strikes me, you just described humility in a really beautiful and articulate way. I sort of think about self-doubt as being that voice inside your head that causes you to really second guess yourself. But you described humility, which is about, you know, listening and recognizing what you don't know. So do you ever have those times when you get into that struggle with the person in your head and it's hard to say, no, this is absolutely what we need to do? Like that's more, I think what I'm kind of getting at that I think a lot of people, I mean, women in particular, I think this can be a real challenge for us in a way that oftentimes men or Kara Swisher apparently um, don't necessarily struggle with. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I have it from three to 5 a.m., Right. I mean, I think that's the time of day when 
I wake up and all of those sort of creeping doubts and did I do the wrong thing and am I doing the right thing? Should I have made this change? Um, all of those things sort of creep out of my psyche and take hold. Um, so how do I balance them uh, or, or battle them? I think I do it by staying extraordinarily busy. Like honestly, I am... I'm, I'm compulsive. I, I work nonstop and that's not a great thing for somebody who's trying to build an organization rooted in balance. But for me, the best way to defeat those doubts is action, um, to forge ahead, to put the blinders on. And so I think that's when those doubts become um, all encompassing, overpowering, that's when I really put the blinders on. I get out of bed, I go to the laptop, I start making those fundraising emails, I start making those um, invites to get you know, big names at our, at our events. I, I work my tail off to stay active and in the moment. Um, and I find that that's a pretty good antidote. Yeah. You're also a mom. You've mentioned your four-year-old daughter, Sophie, a couple of times in this conversation. How did, how did having Sophie change you? I mean, I know you're 24-7, but you're also very well known and very well regarded by the women around you for being somebody who manages to achieve um, whether balance is the right word or not. Who Prioritization, <laughs> let's say, right? <laughs> Talk about your sort of how being a mom has changed, has changed you and helped you evolve. I mean, she's the best thing that ever happened to me. And that sounded, sounds cliche, but uh, I, I struggled really mightily after she was born. I had pretty bad postpartum depression. I, I desperately wanted to go back to work. I, you know, doubted myself both as a mother, but also as a professional in that moment. And, and so I went back to work very early. And my daughter revolted by refusing to take a bottle. And so uh, we had to rent a parking space for her and hire a babysitter who brought her to me three times a day in this office full of you know, young people uh, to nurse three times a day at this office. Um, you know, I, I had a curtain up, but there were people coming in and out for meetings. There was you know, breast milk all over the refrigerator at the Texas Tribune. It was like this crazy, there was constantly a howling baby in the midst of all of these people at this news organization. And she taught me that I wasn't in control, which was uh, probably the most important lesson for someone who is as type A as I am. Um, it was the first time in my life I really wasn't in charge um, uh, of my own destiny or, or of my own schedule. And I think those lessons made me um, a much more empathetic manager. Uh, they taught me how to take care of my team. They taught me what flexibility really needed to look like for women in the workplace um, and, and for men in the workplace, by the way, like, honestly, it starts there, you know, encouraging men to take the same kind of leave policies that women take is so much better for equity in your marriage and, and in parenting. Um, and so she changed everything for me. She taught me how to turn off Twitter. She taught me how to put down my phone. These sound like such simple things, but for journalists like this is, we're hardwired to be constantly scrolling. Um, she's just a, a beautiful and brilliant uh, breath of fresh air who has changed how I think about my priorities in my life. And maybe most important, what I want this world to look like for women, in particular for women who look nothing like my daughter and who have not been born into the privilege that she's been born into. So yeah. she's changed everything and she's the best. <laughs> That's amazing. That's really amazing. Um, if you could just maybe expand on that a little bit and talk about what impact you hope to have as a journalist and as a leader starting this new organization, what do you hope that impact will be? 
Yeah. Well, I mean, I think obviously the big picture impact is I want journalism to be more inclusive and I want journalism, uh, American media writ large to reflect um, more accurately the stories uh, and experiences and opportunities of women in America. But I want to start by changing what the news industry looks like for women. And so, uh, you know, I, I want to make our benefits the gold standard, but also, um, you know, the going rate in newsrooms around the country. I want more women in news leadership. I want more, more women news entrepreneurs. And for me, all of that starts with providing the opportunities and the flexibility for women to uh, both navigate their families and navigate their professional lives. Um, we posted 17 jobs at the 19th several weeks ago, and we got you know close to a thousand applicants for those jobs. Uh, almost all of them were women, and I would say close to three quarters of those women were freelance. They had left the news business in their 30s and 40s because they just could not find the balance between um, you know, having their butt in the chair from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. as an editor uh, and trying to be home for dinner and homework with their small children. I knew this was a problem. I didn't know it was this big of a problem where it would be as obvious um, in the recruitment process as we've seen it to be. So uh, I think that's the start for me is, is trying to change the game uh, of this industry, which is exceedingly grueling and taxing. I mean, if you look at these, you know, women reporters who've been covering the White House for the last four years and longer, you know, the election before that, these people have not had a break in literally like five years. <laughs> I, I mean, I look at people like Maggie Haberman who have, you know, multiple children under 10 and I just do not know how she does it. Uh, she's she's superhuman. It's amazing. Um, so so yeah, those are the kinds of things I'm thinking about in a really big way uh, in this moment. So Emily, last question. We ask everyone who comes on this podcast for a single piece of advice, a life hack, or maybe a mantra. It could be something that you wish you had known when you were just starting out. What would yours be? Mine is always something that my mom told me when I was negotiating my first salary. Uh, and that was the worst thing they can say is no, which, you know, I was trying to decide how to ask for more money and I was ashamed and I was afraid and I didn't want to seem so forward. And I was afraid they might give somebody else the job if I asked for too much money. She said, Emily, the worst thing they can say is no, nothing worse than that. And she was so right. And I think about that in so many of my exchanges, whether it's advocating for myself as a woman uh, in my professional life, um, you know, whether it's thinking about the sort of social obligations that might keep me from my child. Uh, you know, I think about it in virtually every aspect of, of my life. And I think it's, it's, I think about it all the time. It's the best advice I can give. The worst thing they can say is no, always ask. You're terrific. It was so great to be with you today. Thank you for having me. This was great fun. I'm glad we were able to make it happen. To learn more about Emily Ramshaw, check out the show notes for this episode. As always, I'm so grateful that you've chosen to spend some time with us, and I look forward to seeing you next time. Take care.